Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 3, Chapter 8. Seton and Crane spent some time in developing the object compass. They made several of them, mounted in gimbals on super shockproof jeweled bearings. Strictly according to Seton's theory, the instruments were of extreme sensitivity. The one set on the smallest object at the greatest distance, a tiny glass bead at 3,000 miles, registered a true line in less than one second. Having solved the problem of navigation, they made up graduated series of explosive bullets, each one matching perfectly its standard 45 caliber counterpart. They placed their blueprints and working notes in the safe as usual, taking with them only those dealing with the object compass and the explosive bullet on which they were still working. They cautioned Shiro and the three guards to watch everything closely until they got back. Then they set out in the helicopter to try out the new weapon in a place where the explosions could do no damage. It came fully up to expectations. A Mark I charge fired by Crane at a stump over a hundred yards from the flat-topped knoll that had afforded them a landing place tore it bodily from the ground and reduced it to splinters. The force of the explosion made the two men stagger. Wow, Seaton exclaimed. I wonder what a Mark V will do. Careful, Dick. What are you going to be shooting at? Well, that rock across the valley. The rangefinder says 900 yards. Bet me a buck I can't hit it. The pistol chapping of the district? Hardly. The pistol cracked. And when the bullet reached its destination, the boulder was obliterated in a vast ball of, of something. It was not exactly, nor all, flame. It had none of the searing, killing, unbearable radiance of an atomic bomb. It didn't look like much, if any, hotter than the sphere of primary action of a massive charge of high explosive. It did not look even remotely like anything either man had ever seen before, in fact. Their observations were interrupted by the arrival of the shock wave. They were hurled violently backwards, stumbling and falling flat. When they could again keep their feet, both stared silently at the tremendous mushroom-shaped cloud which was hurling itself upward at an appalling pace and spreading itself outward almost as fast. Crane examined the Geiger counter, reporting that it continued to register only background radiation throughout the test. Seaton made observations and used his slide rule. Can't do much from here, right under it, but the probable minimum is 97,000 feet, and it's still going up. I will be totally jiggered. Both men stood for minutes, awed into silence by the incredible forces they had loosed. Then Seaton made the understatement of his long life. I don't think we should shoot a Mark X around here. Haven't you done anything yet? Brookings demanded. I can't help it, Mr. Brookings, Perkins replied. Prescott's men are hard to do business with. I know that, but surely one of them can be reached. Not at ten, and that was your limit. Twenty-five on no dice. Brookings drummed his fingers on the desk. Well, if we have to. 
and he wrote out an order on the cashier for $25,000 in small to medium bills. I'll see you at the cafe tomorrow, four o'clock. The place referred to was the Perkins Cafe, a restaurant on Pennsylvania Avenue. It was the favorite eating place of the diplomatic, political, financial, and social elite of Washington, none of whom even suspected it had been designed and was being maintained by the world-girdling World Steel Corporation as the hub and center of its world-girdling nefarious activities. At four o'clock of the following day, Brookings was ushered into Perkins' private office. Blast it, Perkins. Can't you do anything? he demanded. It couldn't be helped, Perkins replied doggedly. Everything was figured to the second, but the Jap smelled a rat or something and jumped us. I managed to get away, but he laid Tony out cold. But don't worry, I sent Silk Humphrey and a couple of the boys out to get him. Told him to report at 4.08, any second now. In less than a minute, Perkins' communicator buzzed. This is the dick, not Silk, it said in a tiny, tinny voice. He's dead. So are the two goons. That Jap, he's chain lightning and greased wheels. He got all three of them. Anything else I could do for you? No, your job's done. Perkins closed the switch, fusing the spy communicator into a blob of metal, and Brookings called Duquesne. Can you come to my office, or are you bugged? Yes to both, bugged from stem to gudgeon. Prescott men in front, back on the sides, up the trees. I'll be right over. But wait! Relax. Do you think they can outsmart me? I know more about bugging and debugging than Prescott and his dicks will ever learn. In Brookings' office, Duquesne told with saturnine amusement of the devices he had rigged to misinform the private eyes. He listened to Brookings' recital of failure. Then he said, I knew you would lust it up, so I've been making some plans of my own. One thing, though, I want limpidly clear. From now on, I give the orders. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. Get me a helicopter, just like cranes. Get a hop head, six feet tall, that weighs about 160 pounds. Give him a three-hour jolt. Have them at the field two hours from now. Can do. Duquesne was at the field on time. So were the flying machine and the unconscious man. Both were exactly what he had ordered. He took off, climbed swiftly, and made a wide circle to the west and north. Shiro and the two guards, hearing the roar of the engines, looked up and saw what they supposed to be Crane's helicopter coming down on a vertical drop. Slowing at the last possible second, it taxied up to the field toward them. A man, recognizable as Seaton by his suit and physique, stood up, shouted hoarsely, and pointed to the lean still form beside him. He then beckoned frantically with both arms, and slumped, completely inert. All three rushed to help. There were three silenced reports, and the three men dropped. Duquesne leapt lightly out of the copter and scanned the three bodies. The two guards were dead, but Shiro, to his chagrin, showed faint signs of life. But very faint. He wasn't going to live for long. Duquesne put on gloves and went into the house, blew the safe, and rifled through it. 
He found the vial of solution, but could find neither the larger bottle nor any reference to it. He then searched the house from attic to basement. He found the vault carefully concealed, but even he could do nothing about that, nor was there any need, he decided, as he stood staring at it, the only change in his expression being slight narrowing of the eyes and concentrated thought. The bulk of that solution was probably in the heaviest, deepest, safest vault in the country. He returned to the helicopter. In short time, he was back in his own room, poring over blueprints and notebooks. Coming in in the dusk, Crane and Seaton both began to worry when they saw that their landing lights were not burning. They made a bumping landing and hurried toward the house. They heard a faint moan and turned, Seaton whipping out the flashlight with one hand and his automatic with the other. He hastily replaced the weapon and bent over Shiro, a touch having assured him that the other two were beyond help. They picked up Shiro and carried him into his own room. While Seaton applied first aid to the ghastly wound in Shiro's head, Crane called a surgeon, the coroner, the police, and finally Prescott, with whom he held a long conversation. Having done all they could for the injured man, they stood by his bedside, their anger all the more deadly for being silent. Seaton stood with every muscle tense. His right hand, white-knuckled, gripped the butt of the pistol, while under his left the heavy brass rail of the bed began slowly to bend. Crane stood impassive, but with his face white and every feature hard as marble. Seaton was the first to speak. Mart, he gritted, husky with fury. A man who could leave another man dying like that. He's not any kind of man at all. He's a thing. I'll shoot him with the biggest charge that we've got. He's going to be... No, no, I won't either. I'm going to take him apart with my bare hands. We'll find him, Dick. Crane's voice was low and level, but deadly. That is one thing money can do. The tension was relieved by the arrival of the surgeon and the nurses, who set to work with the deftness and precision of their highly specialized crafts. After a time, the doctor turned to Crane. Merely a scalp wound, Mr. Crane. He should be up in a few days. The police, Prescott, and the coroner arrived in that order. There was a great deal of bustling and stirring about and investigating, some of which was profitable. There were many witnesses and a few sound deductions. And Crane offered a reward of one million taxpaid dollars for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. Chapter 9 Prescott, after a sleepless night, joined Crane and Seaton at breakfast. "'What do you make of it?' Crane asked. "'Very little at present. Whoever did it had exactly detailed knowledge of your movements. "'Check, and you know what that means. The third guard, the one that escaped.' "'Yes.' The great detective's face grew grim. "'The trouble will be proving it on him.' Second, he was your size and build, Seaton.' Close enough to fool Shiro. And that would have been ungodly close. Duquesne. For all the tea in China, it was Duquesne. Third, he was an expert safecracker, and that alone lets Duquesne out. That's just as much of a specialty as yours is. They did a beautiful job on that safe. Really beautiful. 
I still won't buy it, Seton insisted. Don't forget, Duquesne's a living encyclopedia, and much smarter than any yegg than I am over that tomcat over there. He could study safe-blowing 15 minutes and be the top man in the field. He's got guts enough to supply a regiment. Fourth, it couldn't have been Duquesne. Everything out there is bugged, and we've had him under continuous observation. I know exactly where he's been, every minute. You think you do, Seaton corrected. He knows more about electricity than the guy who invented it. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever got a man into his house? Well, no, not exactly. But that isn't necessary these days. It might be in this case. But don't try it. Unless I'm wronger than wrong, you won't. I'm afraid so, Prescott agreed. But you're softening me up for something, Seaton. What is it? This. Seaton placed an object compass on the table. I set this on him late last night, and he didn't leave his house all night, which may or may not mean a thing. That end of that needle will point at him from now on, wherever he goes, and whatever comes between, and as far as I know, and I bashfully admit that I know all that's known about the thing, it can't be debugged. If you want to really know where Duquesne is, take this and watch it. It is top secret. Tell no one. Of course, I'll be glad to, but how on earth can such a thing as that work? After an explanation that left the common-sense-minded detective as much in the dark as before, he left. Late that evening, he joined his men at Duquesne's house. Everything was quiet. The scientist was in his study. The speakers registered the usual faint sounds of a man absorbed in work. But after a time, and while a speaker admitted the noise of rustling papers, the needle began to move slowly. Downward. Simultaneously, the shadow of his unmistakable profile was thrown upon the window shade as he apparently crossed the room. Can't you hear him walk? Prescott demanded. No, heavy rugs, and for such a big guy, he walks very lightly. Prescott watched the needle in amazement as it dipped deeper and deeper straight down, and then behind him, as though Duquesne had actually walked right under him. He didn't quite know whether to believe it or not. Nonetheless, he followed the pointing needle and led him beside Park Road and down the hill, straight toward the long bridge which forms one entrance to Rock Creek Park. Prescott left the road and hid behind a clump of shrubbery. The bridge trembled under the passage of a high-speed automobile, which slowed abruptly. Duquesne, carrying a roll of papers, scrambled up from beneath the bridge and boarded it, whereupon it resumed speed. It was of a popular make and color, and its license plates were so smeared with dirt that not even their color could be seen. The needle now pointed steadily at the distant car. Prescott ran back to his men. Get your car, he told one of them. I'll tell you where to drive as we go. In the automobile, Prescott issued instructions by means of surreptitious glances at the compass concealed in his hand. The destination proved to be the residence of Brookings, the general manager of World Steel. Prescott told his operative to park the car somewhere and stand by. He himself settled down on watch. After four hours, a small car bearing a license number of a distant state, which was found out later to be unknown to the authorities of that state, drove up, and the hidden watchers saw Duquesne 
without the papers, step into it. Knowing now what to expect, the detectives drove at high speed to the Park Ridge Bridge and concealed themselves there. The car came up to the bridge and stopped. Duquesne got out of it. It was too dark to recognize him by eye, but the needle pointed straight at him, and half walked, half slid down the embankment. He stood, a dark outline against the gray abutment. He lifted one hand above his head. A black rectangle engulfed his outline. The abutment became again a solid gray. With his flashlight, Prescott traced the almost imperceptible crack of the hidden door and found the concealed button which Duquesne had pressed. He did not press the button, but deep in thought went home to get a few hours of sleep before reporting to Crane the next morning. Both men were waiting when he appeared. Shiro, with a heavily bandaged head, had insisted that he was perfectly able to work, and was ceremoniously ordering out of the kitchen the man who had been hired to take his place. "'Well, gentlemen, your compass did the trick,' said Prescott. He then reported to them in full. "'I'd like to beat him to death with a club,' Seaton said savagely. "'A chair is too good for him.' "'Not that he is in much danger of the chair.' Crane's expression was wry. Why? We know he did it. We can prove it, right? Knowing a thing and proving it to a jury are two entirely different breeds of cat. We haven't a shred of evidence. If we asked for an indictment, we'd be laughed out of court. Check, Prescott? Yes, check. I've booked steel before. They account for half my business and for 99% of my failures. The same thing goes for all the other agencies in town. The cops have hit them time after time with everything they've got and simply bounced. So has the FBI. All any of us has been able to get is an occasional small fish. You think it's hopeless then? Not exactly. I'll keep working on my own. I owe them something for killing my men as well as for other favors they've done to me in the past. But I don't believe in holding out any false hopes. Optimistic cuss, ain't he? Seaton remarked as Prescott went out. He has to be Dick. Report has it that they use murder, arson, and anything else useful in getting what they want. But they have not been caught yet. Well, now we know we're in the clear. They can't possibly get a monopoly and... No, you are getting the point. If we should both happen to die, accidentally, of course, then what? They couldn't get away with that, Mart. You're too big. I'm small fry, but you're M. Reynolds Crane. No good, Dick. No good at all. Jets still crash, and so occasionally do egg beaters. Worse, it does not seem to have occurred to you that World Steel is making the heavy forgings and plates for the Skylark. Hades, brazen bells! Seaton was dumbfounded. And what, if anything, can we do about that? Very little, until after the parts get here, beyond investigating independent sources of supply. Duquesne and Brookings met in the Perkins Cafe. How did your independent engineers like the power plant? The report was very favorable, Doctor. The stuff is all you said it was. But until we get the rest of the solution... By the way, how is the search for more X progressing? 
just as I told you it would. Flat, zero. X cannot exist naturally on any planet having any significant amount of copper. Either the copper will go or the planet will, or both. Seton's X was meteoric. It was all in one lot of platinum. And probably that one X meteor was all there ever was. However, the boys are still looking, just in case. Well, we'd have to get Seton's, someday anyway. Have you decided how to get it? No, that solution is in the safest safe deposit vault in the world. Probably in Crane's name. And both keys to that box are in another one. And so on, ad infinitum. He's got to get it himself, and willingly. Not that it would be any easier to force Seton. But can you imagine anything strong enough to make M. Reynolds Crane Kevin now? Can't say that I can. No. But you remarked once your forte is direct action. How about talking with Perkins? Yes, call him in. It's on execution he's weak, not planning. But I am not weak on execution. Perkins was called in and studied the problem for many minutes, and finally he said, There's only one way. We'll have to get a handle. Don't be a fool, Duquesne snapped. You can't get a thing on either of them, not even a frame. You misunderstand, Doctor. You can get a handle on any man living if you know enough about him. Not necessarily in his past, present, or future. Money, power, position, fame, women. Have you considered women in this case? Women? Bah! Duquesne snorted. Crying's been chased so long he's woman-proof. Seton is worse. He's engaged to Dorothy Vanman. He's stone blind. Better and better. There's your perfect handle, gentlemen. Not only to the solution, but to everything else you want after Seton and Crane have been taken out of circulation. Brookings and Duquesne looked at each other in perplexity. Then Duquesne said, All right, Perkins. After the way I popped off, I'm perfectly willing to let you have a triumph. Draw us a sketch. Build a spaceship from Seton's own plans. Carry her off in it. Take her on a site. Of course, you'll have to have plenty of witnesses it was a spaceship, and it did go straight up out of sight. Then hide her in one of our places, say with the Spencer girl. Then tell Seton and Crane she's on Mars, and will stay there till she rots if they don't come across. They'll wilt, and they wouldn't dare take a story like that to the cops. Any holes in that? Not that I can see at the moment. Brookings drummed his fingers absently on the desk. Would it make any difference if they chased us in their ship, in the condition it'll be in? Not a bit, Duquesne declared. All the better. They'll be gone and in a wreck that would be so self-explanatory that nobody would think of making a metallurgical post-mortem. That's true. Who's going to drive the ship? I am, Duquesne said. I need your help, though. One man from the inner circle. You are Perkins. Perkins, I'd say. Is it safe? Perkins asked. Absolutely. It worked out to the Queen's taste. I'll go along, then. Is that all? No, Brookings replied. You mentioned Spencer. Haven't you got that stuff away from her yet? No, she's stubborn as a mule. Time's running out. Take her along, and don't bring her back. We'll get the stuff back some other way. 
Perkins left the room, and after a long discussion of details, Duquesne and Brookings left the restaurant, each by a different route. Chapter 10 The great steel forgings, which were to form the framework of the Skylark, arrived and were hauled into the testing room, where radium capsule X-raying revealed flaws in every member. Seaton, after mapping the imperfections by orthometric projection, spent an hour with calipers and slide roll. Strong enough to stand shipment and fabrication and maybe a little to spare, maybe 1G of acceleration when we're in the air. Any real shot of power, though, or any sudden turn and pop, she'll collapse like a soap bubble. Want me to recheck my figures? No, I told you not to bother with analysis. We want sound metal, not that junk. Shipping back, then? With an inspector? No. At Seaton's look of surprise, Crane went on. I've been thinking about this possibility for a long time. If we reject these forgings, they will immediately try to kill us some other way. They may very well succeed, too. On the other hand, if we go ahead all unsuspectingly and use them, they will let us alone until the Skylark is done, and that will give us months of free, undisturbed time. Expensive time, I grant, but worth every dollar. Maybe so. As the money man, you're the judge of that. But we can't fly a heap of scrap, Mart. No, but while we are going ahead with this just as though we meant it, we can build another one. Four times in size, in complete secrecy. Mart, you're talking like a man with a paper nose. How do you figure on keeping stuff that size secret from steel? It can be done. I know a chap who owns a steel mill. So insignificant, relatively speaking, that he has not been bought out or frozen at by steel. I've helped him out from time to time, and he assures me he'll be able to cooperate. We will not be able to oversee much of the work ourselves, which is a drawback. However, we can get MacDougall to do it for us. MacDougall? The man who built the Intercontinental? He wouldn't touch a job like this with a pole. On the contrary. He's keen on doing it. It means building the first spaceship, you know. He's too big to disappear, I think. Wouldn't Steele follow him up? They never have. A few times when he and I have been out of touch with civilization for three months or more. Well, it would cost more than our whole capital. Stop talking about money, Dick. Your contribution to the firm is worth more than everything I have. Okay, if that's the way you want it, it tickles me like I've swallowed an ostrich feather, and I can't think of any more objections. Four times the size, wowzy! A 200-pound bar, kapowie! And why don't we build an attractor, a thing like an object compass, except with a 10-pound bar instead of a needle, so if anything chases us in space, we can reach out and shake the way out of it. Or machine guns shooting Mark 1s to 10s through pressure gaskets in the walls. I just bodaciously do not relish the prospect of fleeing from a gaggle of semi-intelligent alien monstrosities just because I got nothing bigger than a rifle to shoot back at them with. All you have to do is design them, Dick. And that shouldn't be too hard. But speaking of emergencies, the power plant should really have a very large factor of safety. 400 pounds, say, and everything in duplicate. 
from power bars to push buttons. I'll buy that. Work was soon begun on the huge steel shell in the independent steel plant under the direct supervision of McDougall by men who had been in his employ for years. While it was being built, Seaton and Crane went ahead with the construction of the original spaceship. Practically all of their time, however, was spent in perfecting the many essential things that were to go into the real Skylark. In due course, the cripple, a name which Seaton soon shortened to Old Crip, was finished. The foreman overheard a conversation between Crane and Seaton in which it was decided not to start for a couple of weeks as they had to work out some kind of a book of navigation tables. Prescott reported that Steele was still sitting on his hands waiting for the first flight. Word came from McDougall that the Skylark was ready. Crane and Seaton went somewhere in the helicopter to make a few final tests. A few nights later, a huge ball landed on Crane Field. It moved lightly, easily, betraying its thousands of tons of weight only by the hole it made in the hard-beaten ground. Seaton and Crane sprang out. Dorothy and her father were waiting. Seaton caught her up and kissed her vigorously. Then, a look of sheerest triumph on his face, he extended a hand to Vainman. She flies! She flies! We've been around the moon! What? Dorothy was shocked. Without even telling me? Why, I'd have been scared pea green if I'd have known. Well, that was why, Seaton assured her. Now you won't have to worry next time we take off. I will so, she protested. But Seaton was listening to Vainman. And how long did it take for this flight? Not quite an hour. We could have done it in much less time. Crane's voice was calm, his face quiet. But to those who knew him so well, every feature showed emotion. Both inventors were at the summit of emotion, moved more than either could have told by their achievement, by the success of the flyer upon which they had worked for so long. Shiro broke the tension by bowing until his head almost touched the floor. Sirs and lady, I impel myself to state this to be wonder extreme. If permitting, I shall delightful luxuriate in preparation, suitable refreshment. Permission granted, he trotted away, and engineers invited the visitors to inspect their new craft. Although Dorothy knew what to expect from the plans and drawings and from her knowledge of old Crip, she caught her breath as she looked about the brilliantly lit interior of the giant Sky Rover. It was a spherical shell of hardened steel of great thickness, some forty feet in diameter. Its true shape was not readily apparent from the inside. It was divided into levels and compartments by decks and walls. In its center was a spherical structure of girders and beams. Inside this structure was a similar one, which, on smooth but immensely strong universal bearings, was free to revolve in any direction. This inner sphere was filled with machinery surrounding a shining copper cylinder. Six tremendous fabricated columns radiated outward, branching in maximum strength design out to the hull. The floor was heavily upholstered and was not solid. The same was true of the dozen or more seats built into various places. There were two instrument boards upon which tiny lights flashed and plate glass, plastic, and metal gleamed. 
Both Vainmans began to ask questions, and Seaton showed them the principal features of the novel vessel. Crane accompanied them in silence, enjoying their pleasure, glorying in the mighty ship of space. Seaton called attention to the great size and strength of one of the lateral supporting columns, then led them over to the vertical column that pierced the floor. Enormous as the lateral was, it appeared puny beside this monster of fabricated steel. Seaton explained that the two verticals had to be much stronger than the four laterals, as the center of gravity of the ship had been placed lower than its geometrical center, so that the apparent motion of the vessel would always be upward. Resting one hand caressingly upon the huge member, he explained exultantly that it was the ultimately last word in strength, made of the strongest known high tensile heat-treated special alloy steel. But why go to such an extreme? the lawyer asked. It looks as though it could support a bridge. It could. It'll have to, if we ever actually cut loose with the power. Do you have any idea how fast this thing can fly? I've heard you talk of approaching the velocity of light, but that's a little overdrawn, isn't it? Not a bit. If it wasn't for Einstein and his famous theory, we could develop an acceleration twice as great as one light velocity. As it is, we're going to see how close we can crowd it, and it'll be close, believe me, out in space, that is. In the air, we'll be limited to three or four times the speed of sound, in spite of all we could do in the line of heat exchangers and refrigeration. But from what I read about jets, ten gravities for ten minutes can be fatal. Well, that's right, but these floors are special, and those seats, infinitely more. That was one of the hardest jobs, designing supporting surfaces to hold a man safe through forces that would ordinarily flatten him out into a thin layer of goo. I see. Well, how are you going to steer? And how about stable reference planes to steer by? Or are you merely going to head for Mars or Venus or Neptune or Aldebaran, as the case may be? That wouldn't be so good. We thought for a while we'd have to, but Mark licked it. The power plant is entirely separated from the ship. Inside that inner sphere about which the outer sphere and the ship itself are free to revolve. Even if the ship rolls or pitches, the bar stays right where it's pointed. Those six big jackets cover gyroscopes, which keep the outer sphere in exactly the same position. Relative to what? Vainman asked. Seems to have moved since we came in. Yes, if you look closely, you can see it moving. Naturally, uh... Never thought of that from that angle, just that its orientation isn't affected by either the ship or the power plant. If you want to pin me down, though, it's oriented solidly to the three dimensions of the steel plant. At the same time, McDougall got the gyroscopes up to holding speed. Since that doesn't mean much here and now, I'd say as an approximation, it's locked to the fixed stars, or rather, to the effective mass of the galaxy as a whole. Please, Dick. Dorothy interrupted. Enough of the jargon. Show us the important things. The kitchen, the bedrooms, the bath. And Seaton did so, explaining in detail some of the many differences between living on Earth and in a small, necessarily self-sufficient worldlet out in airless, lightless, heatless space. Oh, I'm just wild to go out with you, Dick. When will you take me up? 
Very soon, Dottie, just as soon as we're sure we've got all the bugs ironed out. You'll be our first passenger, so help me. Well, how do you see out of this thing? What about air and water? How do you keep warm or cool, as the case may be? Vaynerin fired the questions as though he were cross-examining a witness. No, excuse me. You've already mentioned the heaters and refrigerators. The pilots see outside the whole sphere of vision by means of special instruments, something like periscopes, but vastly different, electronic. Passengers can see out by uncovering windows. They're made of fused quartz. We carry air, oxygen, nitrogen, helium, and argon in tanks, although we won't need much new air because of our purifiers and recovery units. We also have oxygen generating apparatus aboard for emergencies. We carry water enough to last us three months, or indefinitely if necessary, as we can recover all wastewater as chemically pure H2O. Anything else? You'd better give up, Dad, Dorothy advised laughing. It's perfectly safe for me to go along. It seems to be, but it's getting pretty well along toward morning, Dorothy, and if any of us are going to get any sleep at all tonight, you and I should go home. That's right, and I'm the one who has been screaming at Dick about going to bed every night at eleven. I'll go powder my nose. I'll be right back. Vainman said after Dorothy had gone. You mentioned bugs, but only in a light and passing way. And you didn't mention them at all, Seaton countered. Naturally not. With a jerk of his head in the direction of his daughter, he said, How did it really go, boys? Wonderful, really? You tell me, Martin. In the main, very well. Of course, this was a very short flight, but we found nothing wrong with the engines or their controls. We're fairly certain that no major alterations will be necessary. The optical system needs some more work. The attractors and repellers are not at all what they should be in either accuracy or delicacy. The rifles work perfectly. The air purifiers do not remove all odors, but the air after purification is safe to breathe and physiologically adequate. The water recovery system does not work at all. It delivers sewage. Well, that's not too serious with all the water you carry. No, but it malfunctions so grossly that some mistake was made, obviously. It should be easy to find and fix. For a thing so new, we both are very well satisfied with this performance. You're ready for steel, then. I don't know what they'll do when they find out that you don't intend to do anything with old Crip, but they'll do something. I hope they blow their stacks, Seaton said grimly. We're ready for them, with a lot of stuff they never even heard of, and won't like a little bit. Give us four or five days to straighten out the bugs Mark told you about, then let them do anything they want.'